you are tuned in to Workplace Radio for us all. And you know that's right, the baddest podcast in all the land. Okay, go Tom. With Tom, Day, and Shay. Let's go, let's get it. Here we go. Go Tay. Go. Welcome to Workplace Radio for us all. With Tom, Tay, and Shay. Let's go, let's get it. Workplace Radio for us all podcast. The topic for today's podcast concerns the coronavirus. This is a topic that you're hearing about all over the news. Tom is passionate about workplace safety, and he is a proud member of the National Safety Council, also referred to as NSC. You're about to hear a webinar from the NSC in partnership with the Center of Disease Control, referred to as the CDC. This webinar has been pre-recorded and though, and through Tom's membership with the NSC, he is able to bring this webinar to you for free. Subscribe and follow us. This is Tay. Thank you for joining and welcome to the program, uh, COVID-19 update from CDC and NSC, what employers need to know. For this webinar, attendees will be in a listen-only mode. If you need technical assistance, please submit your request under the tech tab in the window in the top right-hand corner of your computer screen. If you wish to submit a question during the presentation, please use the Q&A window in the top right-hand corner of your computer screen. Presenters will do their best to answer all questions. However, due to time constraints, not all questions may be answered during this webinar. I will now turn things over to Catherine Mendoza. Catherine? Thank you, and I want to welcome everyone to our webinar for the National Safety Council in partnership with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, we want to apologize, first of all, for some technical difficulties we were having here in the beginning, um, but it looks like everything is sorted out now um, and we are uh, ready to proceed. Uh, so I am Catherine Mendoza. Um, at the National Safety Council, I serve as both the Senior Program Manager for the Campbell Institute, uh, as well as our inter internal EHS manager. Uh, one final note on logistics before we get started. I do just want to let everyone know that we do not have a presentation for um, this uh, webinar today, but we are still recording um, all of our remarks. Um, we are also providing this webinar at no charge to uh, the public. Um, and we're doing this because we want to make sure that the right, uh, right people get the right information. Uh, we encourage each of you to uh, share this recording and share this information with people both inside your organizations and outside of your organizations by passing on the recording that will be sent to everyone by email. Um, and to help offset the cost of today's session, um, we are asking that you consider making a donation by visiting nsc.org or uh, potentially becoming a member of the National Safety Council. So for us as a mission-based nonprofit organization, um, NSC provides employers with the resources needed to keep employees, employees safe, both on and off the job. And today our topic is extremely timely. Um, this issue is evolving and rapidly changing um, when it is concerning uh, the coronavirus. And so we are going to hear today from a tr our trusted partner and an expert in the field um, from the CDC. Uh, NSC has been following uh, the data surrounding um, the coronavirus uh, since about mid-January, and uh, we have been in regular contact with our partners, um, our stakeholders, and of course our members um, to, be, uh, to provide people with tips um, and resources along the way. 
Uh, during this conversation, uh, we want to make sure that um, everyone is having uh, the appropriate level of conversation, and I want to echo the mindset of our president and CEO, CEO Lorraine Martin, uh, who reminds us um, when we're facing crisis that we need to be smart, be prepared, and also be respectful. Uh, when we say be smart, um, this is by following the data and the information provided to us from trusted sources, of course, like the CDC. Um, we also want to be prepared, and we want to encourage you to do this by assessing your own organization's risk on a continuous basis. And then finally, to be respectful, um, not only by making sure to not ensue panic, but also, in general, just be good to each other. So at this time, I would like to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Ian Williams, Deputy Incident Manager at the CDC. Thank you, Catherine, and good afternoon, everybody. Again, I'm Ian Williams. I'm one of the deputy incident managers for the coronavirus response here at CDC. So I thought I would do is just give you a brief situational overview of sort of where we are and where we think this is going in the United States, um, and then try to have time to answer your questions. And along the way, uh, we've got some questions given to us in advance, so I'll try to um, cover some of those topics to hopefully uh, lead us to a point where I can get many of your questions answered. So if, if you don't have time to uh, chime in uh, at the end, hopefully you'll get the information you want to hear. So um, as Catherine said, this is a rapidly evolving situation, both internationally and domestically. Um, if you look around the world, there's more than 110,000 cases reported, um, and 100 plus countries are now reporting COVID-19 uh, disease. Um, and there are more countries being added every day. Um, in the United States, we're now up in the ballpark of about 650 cases reported domestically. Um, 36, 36 states uh, plus the District of Columbia have reported. Um, there have been 25 deaths reported. Um, currently, most of the cases uh, have been reported from California and Washington, um, from the, around the Seattle area and sort of the North Bay uh, kind of area north of San Francisco. Um, and most of the deaths are being reported um, out of the kind of Seattle area, many of them associated with um, long-term care, nursing home type uh, facilities. Um, so what I thought I wanted to talk, start talking a little bit to you about that's maybe germane um, to you thinking about um, being business leaders um, is really this idea of uh, the kind of the concept of, of sort of risk and how we're thinking about risk and how that will lead us um, to where we're going with our strategy to how we protect Americans um, and, and where we're going to focus over the course of this outbreak. So uh, there's a couple of ways to sort of look at this concept of risk and what is going to likely happen here in the United States. Um, the two ways to look at risk are really sort of what's your risk of being exposed and getting sick, and then there's the other piece of this is if you get sick, what's the risk that you're going to get sick or potentially actually die from this virus? Well, I'll address the first part first. Um, basically, data that's come out of China and from the WHO um, basically shows that this virus is highly contagious. Um, that is easily spread from person to person. Um, it's spread predominantly by what we call droplet spread. So it's sort of the way the traditional sort of flu is flu or cold is spread. So it's close personal contact. I want to make sort of two comments. Um, this is not what we call airborne spread, so it doesn't hang out in the uh, room for long periods of time. Um, an example of a virus like this is measles, so this is not as contagious as measles, but based on the data we have now, it is actually more contagious than we would see with seasonal flu. Also, because this is a brand new virus, there's no immunity against this virus in the population. 
So based on sort of these facts together, that it's transmissible, that there's no immunity, it's fair to say that the trajectory, as the trajectory of this outbreak continues, that many people at the United States will at some point in time, either this year or next year, will be exposed to the virus, and it's a good chance that many will actually become sick. This is to prepare folks, but not to scare folks. And again, um, one of the things to sort of emphasize here is if you get infected, what's your risk of getting sick or getting very sick from this? This is where the news out of China and from other countries around the world um, basically shows that about 80% of people who become infected uh, have a mild illness and these people recover. About 15 to 20% of people develop serious illness. I'm not trying to minimize the serious illness here, but really the fact is most people who get infected um, will have a mild illness um, and recover. Um, so far, the data we have that's emerging out of China and other parts of the world um, seem that children are not the group that's at highest risk of developing serious disease. Um, in China, they looked at more than 70,000 infections, and only about 2% of them were in children um, younger than 19 years of age. Why this is exactly true is something of active study, but it's something that um, seems to be emerging, that children, school-aged children, are not the ones that are at risk of severe, um, of getting severely ill and uh, potentially dying from this. Um, it really, uh, the bulk of the data seems to suggest this is a disease that affects adults, and it's more serious in older adults. What I mean by older adults is it looks like there's an increased risk of death starting around 60 years of age, and it increases with age with the highest risk of serious illness and death in people older than 80 years of age. Um, one of the other things that was noticed, uh, especially in the cluster of illnesses in the Seattle area, um, is that people with serious underlying health conditions are more likely to develop serious outcomes or deaths. That is, the people who will be at the greatest risk are those who are older and have serious long-term health conditions, um, things like diabetes, heart disease, or lung disease. So an emerging sort of part of this is really thinking about a focus on um, how to protect um, those people at highest risk. So last week, CDC added guidance on our website um, focusing on those people who are at higher risk for serious illness. Um, and it really focuses on what people that themselves can do, what their families can do, what communities can do, what long-term uh, care facilities, uh, nursing homes, uh, places where, where older folks may congregate um, can do to basically um, think about a coming threat to them. Really, this is a, a, a pivot towards what we call community mitigation. Really, it's this idea that preparing the community to be ready for when COVID-19 comes to your community. And it's unfortunately what folks in Seattle and the Northern uh, North Bay area of San Francisco, and now more recently in sort of the sort of Westchester, New York area are starting to have to um, look at these sort of what's going on in my community. Um, beginning in this outbreak, actually going back a number of weeks, there was a very aggressive strategy to try to keep this disease outside of the United States. And, and I would say, that there has been um, good success in delaying the introduction into the United States. But we know the strategy of limiting travelers from China and other parts of the world was an imperfect strategy. It was a leaky strategy because people were, were going to get in uh, from other countries, um, and we knew eventually it was going to get here. So delaying it has been good because it has um, bought us some time to help prepare, help prepare healthcare systems, get things in place so that we're ready for it to be here. Um, and help us think about the community mitigation strategies. Um, so uh, a couple of things to say about this is that on our website, we have lots of good um, advice for people and some stuff 
that is probably very relevant to uh, you both in your daily life, but also you thinking about as business owners um, and uh, working with industries across uh, the, the nation here. So a little bit about the uh, kind of recommendations for the highest risk, since that's the group we're focusing on. Some of these things are focusing on things like making sure that people at highest risk that I mentioned have uh, medical supplies on hand, their, their medications for diabetes and blood pressure, their over-the-counter medications, making sure they have sufficient household items and groceries so that they'll be prepared to stay home for a period of time, and taking everyday precautions to avoid close contact with people who are sick, cleaning your hands often, avoiding touching high-touch high surfaces in publics, avoiding crowds, poorly ventilated spaces. Um, so really kind of some, of the, some idea for the high-risk people. But one of the things I wanted to emphasize is, is that um, as, uh, as COVID-19 is spreading in the United States, uh, communities are taking a very aggressive, what we call containment strategy in the early days. So when you have a limited number of cases in the community, the public health departments, uh, state and local, are being very aggressive at identifying ill people, basically identifying um, their contacts, people that who may have made them sick or the people who they might have made sick, and aggressively following up those people to make sure that they're notified, they can monitor their health. If they get sick, then they can come in for testing. So this is very much the early phase, and this is going on um, in most places in the United States right now. In places where there's community spread, they're considering uh, this move to what we call community mitigation. Community mitigation is looking at things um, in their community that they can do to lessen transmission on a community level. Um, and on our website, there actually are some recommendations um, that you all should consider looking at um, that is around um, mass gatherings, large community events, what sort of general recommendations are for those, uh, those things and the things you need to consider. And just to give you sort of a general flavor of sort of what that guidance looks like, um, it's really meant to be um, guidance in the largest sense. They're not the specifics that some people may want or need. And the reason is, is that how this is going to look in, uh, in the community mitigation, how it's going to look is going to look different in different places around the country. Community mitigation is not a switch that you flip on and off. It's a dial that you sort of turn up as disease comes in your community. And a couple of things you'll hear me say over and over again, it's very important that you, um, you and your businesses reach out early to your state and local health department folks so that you know who they are and can start planning. And a lot of the, the guidance we have is focused at people getting ready. Here's what you need to do before it comes to your community. Um, like for the mass gathering guidance, it's basically pull together a plan, um, figure out how your plan's gonna work, um, promote daily practices, uh, preventive practices among your staff and uh, employers today, teach them about stay home if you're sick, you know, those kind of things. So getting people ready for this stuff. But also um, preparing for things about if I had to discontinue um, uh, an event that I might be doing, what would that look like? What would be the triggers for me? What, one of those things sort of makes sense to me and uh, have an open lines of communications with your state and local health department because the reality is, is that um, state and local health departments are where these decisions are going to be made. They're not made at a federal level. And different places in the country, different state and local health departments have different and varying authorities uh, regulatory authorities about how aggressive they can be or will be around mandatory closings. Um, so this is why uh, reaching out and understanding those things um, at a local and state level are really critical now. 
Um, so I'd suggest going to our website and looking at that. Also thinking about some other things that are up on our website um, that would be useful uh, for you guys to look at. There, we, also, we get lots of questions um, around environmental cleaning and disinfection. So how do we clean? How do we disinfect? I'll say at a high level that cleaning and disinfection for this is not too different from other things we do for cleaning and disinfection. There's nothing, um, there's, there's not high level disinfectants that are, are needed for this. There's some pretty standard stuff um, that you would do and do for many respiratory viruses will be effective against this as well. So there's guidance is about sort of what you need to clean and disinfect, sort of how to do it, how to prepare cleaning solutions, you know, um, four teaspoons of bleach and a quart of water, kind of those things. So recipes for how to do this, how to have protective equipment for your, your uh, workers who may be doing this cleaning, um, and then really thinking you through that process. Um, we also have guidance up on our website um, for basically uh, businesses, employers writ large. Um, and a lot of this is, as I mentioned, are, uh, are uh, pretty common sense things like actively encouraging employees to stay home, separating sick employees, um, emphasizing to stay home when you're sick, <clears throat> practicing good etiquette at work about sneezing into your um, uh, elbows, um, to think about when you shake hands, um, some issues around social distancing uh, especially, um, to think about travel that you might be planned as it make uh, sense to travel where I'm going to travel. Um, so there's a lot of that on our website to really kind of help move you in the right direction. Um, maybe one other thing to say, and then before I kind of um, uh, open it up to questions, um, a couple, one of the things we have to actually heard a lot of and get questions on is really the use of, of masks and do we recommend that people go out and buy masks. I want to sort of reemphasize that CDC is not recommending that um, the general public go out and buy masks. And, and really this is sort of uh, for twofold reasons. So one is we need the supply of protective masks actually for our, our healthcare workers and those groups that are the most vulnerable. Um, and so trying to make sure that those folks actually have the, the uh, personal protective equipment they need is, is very important, um, is one piece of it. The other piece of this really is, is that, you know, uh, the sort of surgical masks uh, that you would buy actually don't do a very good job of actually protecting you yourself from getting infected. They actually are more effective if you are sick to keep you from getting other people sick. Um, so going out and buying these up and having them uh, in your house uh, basically shortens the supply for those people who need them um, in the healthcare setting. So there's sort of that plea to sort of say, I know people ask about this all the time, so I want to sort of say that's one of the common um, sort of questions. So maybe uh, just, just looking over um, some of the general questions uh, you all asked, a lot of these questions about when are events gonna get closed? When should I close? How do you define a mass gathering? What's the size? There is no specific guidance from CDC on these. These are all going to be decisions that you all should think through um, individually um, and as groups um, and share with one another. And again, prepare to think about what makes sense. Um, again, uh, communities and places like Seattle now and uh, are starting to think through these things. Um, how can we actually operationalize these? When does it make sense to turn the dial at these different levels? Um, and they're working very closely with their community leaders to sort that out right now in Seattle. So maybe I will stop there and be happy to take questions. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Ian. I really appreciate um, all of those thoughts and comments, and there are certainly a lot of questions that have been submitted. Um, so I think at this point um, we will kind of start with the questions that we see uh, coming in that are pretty similar. 
Um, and I think to start off with, um, this question um, is certainly top of mind for a lot of folks. Um, if this escalates in the U.S., will CDC issue domestic travel advisories? So, uh, yeah, that's a good question to ask. So at this point, there is no plans to, to do that. That would be something very unusual um, for CDC to do, and I'm not aware that we have done that effort domestically. Um, but it's something I can tell you that has been talked about um, at the sort of highest levels of government if that's needed. I think at this point it's not needed. Uh, one of the things CDC is working on is um, the ability so that folks have information and know about which communities um, actually have a, a sort of community transmission of COVID-19 um, going on. And right now it's still limited to just those couple of places, but as this um, potentially spreads through other places, we understand there's going to be a need for people to be aware of, is this in my community? Should I travel to those communities so that they can make personal decisions? But um, that, there'll be more to come on that, I think, as this starts to spread a little further, but at least as of now that I've not heard anything about uh, domestic um, travel recommendations. But with that said, there have been some recommendations around considering when you travel, especially if you're in these high-risk groups, do I need to take a long plane flight? There was some um, uh, guidance about uh, taking cruises, especially if you're in this sort of older high-risk group. I mean, reconsidering a lot of these things. We realize there are personal decisions that go into this, so we're trying to make uh, people as informed as possible. But I think at this point is consider if you're in one of these risk groups, consider if you want to do this, if you want to do this travel or hold this event, and we're kind of allowing people to figure it out for themselves. And uh, from what I've seen, I don't, we, I think the federal government would not criticize anybody for closing an event now. Um, I think they, uh, that, or having an event, I think it's up to them as long as they went through this kind of pro thought process about why I'm still doing this. Um, and if uh, in a place like Seattle or uh, Westchester County now, working closely with their state and local health department to make sure that we're all on the same page about holding um, mass gathering kind of events. Over. Great. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think uh, there's been a couple questions around just kind of clarifying um, what this virus is and kind of what the differences are when we look at something uh, that is very similar like SARS. So could you kind of define the difference for us? Yeah, so this, so this is a brand new virus uh, that looked like it emerged out of central China, and it's in the same general family as um, uh, SARS and MERS, um, these sort of two other viruses. It's called a coronavirus, and the reason it's called a coronavirus, it actually has a halo around it when you look at it um, sort of in a, in a, 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 sort of in a mass, uh, an electro, when you, when you take a picture of the virus, it actually has this little halo around it. That's why it's called a coronavirus. Um, so. The, the things that make this virus different than SARS and MERS are really sort of two kind of landscapes is how easily is it spread and then how severe is the disease among people who get infected. So this one, uh, this coronavirus, COVID-19, looks like it is spreads more easily from person to person than either SARS or MERS, which makes it, um, again, transmissible through the population. Right now, it looks like it is more infective, more, it, it infects it has a higher infectivity rate than what we say with seasonal flu. Um, that, uh, but it is not nearly as high as some other respiratory viruses like measles, which is very infectious. So it's sort of higher than we would see with flu, but it's not as bad as other people. So we know it's, it's uh, transmissible. The severity of illness is sort of the other axis here. This is, does not look like it's nearly severe, as severe as um, either SARS or MERS 
but it looks like it's more severe than we would see with a, a bad seasonal flu. So it's sort of in that spectrum sort of thing. So we do expect this to be worse um, than sort of a bad seasonal flu year, which we already knows, um, you know, results in a number of deaths in the U.S. every year. So we're sort of expecting more than that. Um, and one of the things, there's a lot of active research, as I said, trying to sort out, like, why are children seem to be spared severe disease? Why is this focusing on kind of the elderly, especially the immune-compromised population? So we'll learn more about that as this goes. Perfect. Well, thank you for that, that clarification. I'm sure that was useful for a lot of folks on the phone. Um, so we have a couple questions coming in and various different uh, ways that they're phrased, but people are in general are interested uh, in how do they know when um, their business should close or how should they know what their business should be doing, uh, whether that's uh, offices or, you know, ma manufacturing facilities and things like that. So in general, I think from a business standpoint, um, what are your recommendations? Yeah, so my recommendation is go look at the CDC website. There's actually kind of a nice uh, guidance that says interim guidance for business and employers that kind of lays out a lot of the strategy. So it's here's how you prepare. Um, here's stuff you can start doing right now. And uh, that basically here are the planning considerations around if COVID-19 comes to your community. And they, again, I just want to sort of emphasize that a lot of this is going to be done um, in something that works best at individual employer level and sort of emphasize that, you know, working closely with your state and local health departments and knowing who those people are is um, super critical because that's who you're going to um, interact with. Um, so I think we're asking people to, again, be prepared, think about these issues, and this uh, kind of guidance helps you walk through and make sure that you, um, see, you, you sort of thought through all the right pieces as you're developing this plan. Um, also on our website, we actually have a number of, like, nice print resources. There's kind of handouts, posters things like that. So if you need to have stuff to put up in your workplace to get people prepared, you know, stuff about how to stop the spread of germs, how to wash your hands, what the symptoms are. So we have kind of nice tear sheets or tear sheets and posters that you can take and reproduce um, as you will. So, so those sorts of things are good on our website. Over. Great. Thank you so much. So we have another question that it, it's a bit of a long question, um, and there's some specifics in here, but we think that it would be um, from a relatability kind of standpoint, I think it would be good. So, so bear with me and let me know if I need to, uh, to make uh, anything more specific. So the question reads, I have an employee who went to Italy for a week and returned to the U.S. on February 24th. His wife, a teacher, went back to work for a week and then was asked to go on voluntary quarantine. His son who had been to Italy for school, returned to the U.S. on March 3rd and also is on a voluntary quarantine. Our employer returned to work immediately coming home and has been in the U.S. for 16 days. Should we have him stay home for a week until his son's and wife's voluntary quarantine is up? So complicated question there. So, so let me maybe sort of uh, pull the pieces apart and then um, see if I can uh, 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 sort of help figure out. So one of the things we know about um, the, this disease, COVID-19, um, is that from the time you get exposed to the time you become ill is typically sort of in the three to sort of six day rates. That's when most people will become sick after if they're exposed and they become sick. The upper end of that is 14 days. So from the data we have, almost everybody, 99.95 or 6%, something like that, will become ill within that 14-day window. So this is the basis of staying home for 14 days um, and monitoring your health, because if you're good for 14 days, you're, you're not going to likely be um, sort of ill going forward. So 
The other thing to say is, is that we have up on our website also travel guidance and recommendations um, where we are um, uh, uh, categorizing countries about basic, based on their risk. And so the countries that are at the highest risk, we're asking people to essentially stay home um, and monitor their health for 14 days. Countries that are sort of intermediate risk, we're telling people, you should monitor your health. You should practice social distancing. You don't necessarily um, have to be like to stay at home. It's sort of the, the the more we're practicing good sort of things. The countries which are still low risk, it's go about your normal business um, sort of as usual. So I think a lot of this depends on when the people return from those various countries, what the specific guidance was sort of at that point sort of there. Um, and I think the important point here is, especially early on in this, um, in this epidemic uh, uh, or this sort of uh, disease transmission in the United States, what we want people to do is if they've been at a place where they're at um, any sort of increased risk, to really monitor their health. If they're sick, they should think about this. Um, there's lots of other reasons that you can develop um, cough and shortness of breath in the community. Currently, there's still um, seasonal influenza happening in many parts of the country. So just because you get sick doesn't mean that you have um, coronavirus. It could be something else. Um, this is why we're saying monitor your health. If you get sick, don't go to work. Um, reach out to your health care provider to basically get testing. And maybe that's another thing I should mention is that um, testing is available here in the United States and becoming more available. Um, CDC has provided someplace around 75,000 test kits to your state and local health departments. So people who want to get tested get tested. CDC has been able to provide testing to any state or local health department who needs it and needs a person tested. We don't want the worried well to like come to all the uh, kind of overwhelm our healthcare system. Um, but also uh, commercial laboratories are in the process this week of cranking up their capacity um, to do private laboratory kind of testing, which we should make it even more available. There's likely in the next several weeks to have millions or several millions of tests um, available. So um, I just want to kind of say there's lots of testing. So going back to your specific question is that I would follow the guidance on our website. Um, I would say people who have been in these high-risk countries need to stay home. If you're in contact with somebody who has been in a high-risk, you need to understand what your level of risk is. Like, are you a household member or casual contact? Um, if you get sick and know you've been in contact with somebody, you should consider, could I have COVID-19? And then reach out to your local um, healthcare provider um, to, for the appropriate thing. Because one of the things we're actually asking now too is a lot of local healthcare providers and hospitals don't want you actually to come in. They're setting up, if you think you might have it, they're setting up um, either uh, special clinics or special areas where you would come um, so you don't either get infected if you don't have it or if you have it, you don't infect other people. So that was a long answer to a, like a, a complicated question, but did I, do you think I answered it? Uh, definitely, yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think maybe as a follow-up and some questions that we've, seeing, be, uh, we've been seeing as well, is people are asking about what happens if someone does uh, contract the virus, how long um, before they can come back to work? Yeah, so that, that's actually a great question. Um, so uh, the typical course of disease is this is for a couple of days to a week or so that you're sick. And again, there's a, spec there's a kind of a spectrum of illness to sort of mild illness to more severe. Um, people who are more severe, again, develop respiratory conditions, they need to be put into the hospital to have assistance with breathing um, through ventilators and other sort of uh, measures along those lines. Again, this is more the high-risk people. Uh, most people do well. So if you are um, sick and get diagnosed, 
the general sort of guidance at the moment is after you recover, that means you don't have a fever, you're feeling better. The recommendations are, are, are sort of currently evolving a little bit, but it's someplace between three and seven days we're asking people to stay home. Currently, um, there's the ability to do some testing of people after they're sick. And so in certain places in the United States, especially early on, um, people are gonna uh, get tested sort of in that window after they recover to make sure that they're not positive, the virus is gone from, their, um, from the test, uh, which is basically uh, putting a swab in your nose. Um, so they're sort of saying, yes, you're clear and good to go back to work. That's typically sort of three to five to seven days after. There will be more guidance, I think, coming on that out around this in the coming days because I think we may reach a point in the United States where we're not going to have the ability to test everybody who might get sick. So I think we're going to have to come up with some common sense recommendations. It looks like it's maybe settling into that sort of three to five days after you got ill. Most people will have cleared the virus and be good to go back to work. So, so more to come on that, but that's sort of where we are at the moment. Over. Great. Yeah. No, that's been, that's very helpful. Um, we have a couple questions about um, kind of the longevity of, of the issue. So, how long do we expect this to be kind of an ongoing issue in the U.S. or in the world, for that matter? And also, is this something that we can expect to be around year after year? Is this kind of our new flu, or is this something that um, will dissipate? Yeah, those are all great questions. And the answer is nobody knows for sure, to be quite honest, because it's a brand new thing and, and nobody knows. Um, but I think that the uh, sort of experts at, at large sort of expect this, this is something that's going to be with us for a couple of months, longer than a couple of months, likely into next fall or to next year. Um, and again, one of the focuses here is currently there are no, there's not a vaccine. There's not likely to be a vaccine available um, anytime soon, meaning in the coming months. Uh, many experts are saying it's you know, a year out till we see a vaccine or, you know, around a year out till we actually see a vaccine that we can use. Um, the other thing to say, too, is, is right now there are no sort of approved um, uh, treatments uh, like uh, medications you can give people to lessen the severity of disease. There are some clinical trials going on right now with at least one drug, and I know they're looking at other ones. So the idea is if you get sick, you can take this drug and it will lessen your course of disease, lessen your likelihood of having severe disease. So we're currently doing a lot of those work now to help us prepare. So even though vaccine may be a ways out, um, hopefully we'll have these kind of uh, medications which we can take um, coming um, shortly here in the next either weeks or months. With that said, part of the community mitigation strategy is to try to stretch this out as long as possible in some ways to slow down spread in communities for two reasons. One is to give us more time to make sure that we um, can get those uh, therapeutics into the market, give us time to have a vaccine, um, and also to give us more time to help uh, protect the vulnerable populations, make sure that we're really focusing on those folks that are at the highest risk. So the short answer is um, that we don't know for sure, but I think that we have to be prepared to think about this as something that's not going to be gone in the next month or two. This is something that may be with us um, for a period of time. Over. Great, Anna, thank you. Um, so we were getting a couple questions about um, the proper ways to clean or disinfect the office areas or um, the workplaces in general. Um, is this something that um, 
you know, that you have specific kind of recommendations on as far as uh, the use of disinfectants? Um, is it just in kind of those high population areas? And then also more specifically, there is a question on um, shared food and drink areas. So um, a lot of organizations have like cafeterias and things like that. Uh, do you have any recommendations for those? Yeah, so actually if you go onto our um, website, there's actually um, – some pretty good uh, sort of general guidance about sort of how to clean and disinfect. Um, it helps you try to figure out um, sort of what setting you're in. Are you a, like, are you a school, a daycare, are you a business? You know, what do we mean by cleaning? What do we mean by disinfection? Sort of those things. Um, and really kind of walks you through um, sort of thinking about sort of where you need to, uh, when do you need to do it? Where do you need to do it? Where does it make sense? Um, and some of this has to do with the setting you're in. Do you have people there overnight? Do you not? Um, sort of how to clean and disinfect specific surfaces, uh, what sort of appropriate solutions to do cleaning, uh, how people who are doing the cleaning, what they should wear as they should uh, clean, um, and also um, thinking about, like, if you have to do, uh, like, laundry and trash pickup, some stuff around that. Um, and one of the things I would sort of say is the guidance may not be as detailed as some people want, but what we are sort of hoping is, is that people can sort of think through and develop what makes sensible guidance to them, to their personal place. We always encourage folks to reach out to their state or local health department for sort of guidance. They kind of do this stuff all the time and are familiar with developing these plans for a number of settings like daycare settings, hospitals, um, food service, so they can help provide guidance to you to help, if you come up with a general plan, they can help you craft this to, to be ready, or they may have stuff they, they can give you as well. So I'd say look at our website to get started, um, and some of it is thinking through and asking just those right questions. Where are the places should I think of, be thinking about cleaning and disinfecting? What makes sense? What's the right timing? Um, and this guidance will help you get, hopefully, um, in the right ballpark to make something that makes sense for you. Over. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, we have gotten uh, this question, which I think is very interesting and interested in your thoughts um, on this. So they ask, um, do you have any recommendations or resources for how employers can provide um, a calm workers' concern and, and calm workers' concern while keeping them informed? Yeah, no, this, there's always this balance of, you know, prepare, don't scare. Um, I think that part of like even this discussion today is to educate people, getting them sort of thinking about sort of what's going on in the United States and having people kind of armed with the facts that, you know, that, that this disease, it's something we're going to be dealing with. It is serious for some people. It's not necessarily um, serious for everyone. It's trying to get people to understand sort of where they are so they can understand the risks. And if you can fall into a higher risk group, you may want to take more aggressive sort of personal actions to keep yourself from getting um, infected. Um, so, uh, so I think, you know, again, it's sort of on our website, we have like pretty good materials that kind of dis discuss this, um, uh, that, that you can put on the wall, you can distribute to employees. And I think a lot of uh, the guides does say one of the things is sit down and have this discussion with your employees, get them ready thinking sort of through this sort of now so that um, if it shows up in your community, this is not the first time you're doing. Um, and we've been actually kind of recommending this for the last couple of weeks, especially around, um, you know, our, our school systems. Do you guys, have you thought about this? What is your plan? How is this going to work? Have you connected with all the right places? Going to our um, hospital saying, are you guys ready? Have you thought through all of the issues? So we're kind of using different sectors of the 
kind of uh, the U.S. kind of economy to say, you guys need to get ready. You need to think about what makes sense to you. Be prepared for this so that um, when it, if it shows up in your community, you at least have a plan you can start with and then adapt as you need. Over. Um, so we, we got a question a couple times. Um, I think it's actually in response to something that you mentioned um, during the webinar. So a lot of people are asking, should you or, or should they as employers recommend that people over the age of 60 stay home from work? So at, at this point, the answer is no. Um, uh, one of the things to sort of say is if you look right now in the United States, even though there's 650 sort of cases, the overall risk to the average American still seems is, is low. It's not necessarily the same every place in the country. And that's part of as this sort of unfolds, the risk in Seattle currently is very different than the risk sort of in the St. Louis area where there have been I don't even know if any cases have been reported in St. Louis area, but there's not many cases in the middle part of the country sort of currently. Um, most of the cases, again, are concentrated in Seattle, uh, uh, north of San Francisco, and in sort of the New York City area. So the risk in those places is different, and uh, businesses are taking sort of different approaches to what makes sense for them. A number of businesses in the Seattle area, some of the tech industry, are just telling people work from home. This makes sense for us, it makes sense for you, and they plan for that, and they have their IT infrastructure in place to make sure that that can indeed work. So I would say at this point, sort of globally in the United States, that's not a recommendation I think that anybody would make. However, in places like Seattle, this is what they're sort of having discussion in their community about when is the right time to think about doing this. Um, and again, I think hopefully this again is focusing, um, you know, the information is focusing on those people at highest risk, um, people who have underlying health conditions, um, sort of older people, and then sort of turning that dial in those communities at the right place. So I would say if you're in Seattle, you're in a different place than if you're in um, St. Louis right now. But, you know, things are changing, and I think that's part of keeping up to date what's going on and it being prepared because things may be different in St. Louis six weeks from now, and so those folks need to be prepared to sort of say, if it's coming to my community, I need to be prepared to think about taking, sort of turning up that dial a little bit more. Over. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. I appreciate that. So we only have about one minute left, and I have one final question that hopefully is, a, is, a, is an easy one, and it is, if you get it once, can you get it again? So right now, there is no evidence that people can become reinfected. Based on what we know, that, um, that uh, basically you, if you get sick, you develop an immune response, and it seems to protect you um, from this current virus. So, so that's good news, but also gives us hope that um, a vaccine can be developed in relatively short order because people do seem to develop a good immune response. So it's working out that vaccine. Um, so that gives us hope that uh, I think a vaccine um, can come again in short order, not nearly fast enough, but um, that gives us hope that there can be a vaccine. Over. Wonderful. Well, that does bring us uh, to the top of the hour here. So uh, I want to give Ian a sincere gratitude and thank you for joining us today um, for this webinar. Um, we do realize that there are lots of questions that we were not able to answer. Um, and we definitely recommend that each of you uh, visit the CDC website, um, as um, Ian has mentioned, lots of different guidelines that are available there. If you have any additional questions about the council or you know services there, you can you can uh, uh, email at, email us at customerservice at nsc.org. Um, this will certainly help inform us of kind of what's on your mind and uh, what kind of information that you are looking for in the future. So with that, um, I will um, say thank you and just remind. You once again, that there will be a recording going out. I certainly encourage you uh, to share that with.
Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Workplace Radio for us all concerning the coronavirus. And tune in for many more topics, so stay safe.